Pelotero Pickle, episode 65. This week we have special guest Kevin Graber, head coach at Phillips Andover. We dig into all topics of player development, coaching high school prep level ball. Really awesome episode. You're going to love it. Check it out. Pelotero Pickle, episode 65. We have a special guest with us today. Coach Kevin Graber from Phillips Andover Academy. Is it what is it? Phillips Andover Academy? Yeah, that can be got? confusing because we're known by a number of different names. The official name is Phillips Academy Andover, but some people just call us Phillips Academy. Some people call us Phillips Andover. Some people just call us Andover. But I like on the letterhead, it says like Phillips Academy Andover. Got it. Yeah, because there's a Phillips Exeter up in New Hampshire. Ew. No, yeah. No, it's uh, but, another amazing school just north of us. Yeah. We'll just call it the uh the future presidents of America school. That works. <laughs> There's and then as always, as always, we have Chris Calabella with us, but first send us your emails with topics at pickle at Peltero.com and hit us up on Twitter at Peltero pickle. Send us your content requests. We love hearing from you. Keep doing that. So Chris, how are you doing? Hi, Bob. Hello, KG. I'm, Hello. I'm excited to have you. KG is my favorite high school coach on the planet. I can't even call you a high school coach because you're so much more than that. So thank you. That's quite a compliment. And yeah, uh, love just having a relationship with you all. You know, Bobby, I've been following the resources that you put out there about hitting for a good long time now. And I'm just super inspired by both you guys. I mean, your roads, uh, I, I see some similarities in my road as well. But, uh, you know, Chris, going from Assumption College to undrafted to the Can-Am League to you know, the big leagues and, and Bobby from UVM to the Can-Am League to, you know, all of a sudden you're throwing it, not all of a sudden, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, you find yourself pitching on, on the, on the, on the big league uh, stage at the, at the home run derby, man, you guys are just this great stories. Appreciate that. Yeah. It's everybody's got a journey in this game. I feel like there's baseball, is such a reflection of life and you have adversity and you have highs and lows and you just got to keep grinding and keep showing up. And uh, we actually, so as part of the prep, for having you on we had a there's a big article let me get the resource correct to make sure i nail it so the the philippian is yeah it all right <laughs> so a big article talking about your whole your whole journey i guess uh, a lot of things that i didn't know i know i i know you've you've coached and i know you're you do stuff in the cape and um have just been around baseball forever but some of your story going back, the thing that hit me the most was you had some, some health issues that you were dealing with as you were still trying to play. Yeah. Um, without going into too much detail about that, unless you want to, Yeah. how influential was the, the possibility that the Jersey would be taken off your back? The, like we talk about taking every game and appreciating every moment, but it, it's hard to instill that until you get hurt until something happens. Right. How much has that influenced your whole baseball trajectory? I guess, since, since you've stopped playing yourself. Well, you know, we're baseball guys on this podcast. You know, we, we identify ourselves in a lot of different ways as a, you know, by our dedication to our family, by what our job is, but I mean, we're, we're baseball people. And then, so basically when I was diagnosed with lymphoma in May of 1992, I was playing baseball at the college of St. Rose, you know, division two level. And we were in the playoffs and I had been sick for you know, a good three weeks or a month. And I had been going to doctors. I wasn't able to get an accurate diagnosis. And I basically collapsed on the field at Bleecker Stadium. Um, yeah, this is, you know, May of my senior year. And, wow. uh, you know, went to St. Peter's Hospital. They took me there, emergency room, and, and uh, I was admitted in their ICU uh, right away. 
got that diagnosis. And then it was, you know, surgeries, a two week long ICU stay, and then six months of chemotherapy, and another three months of radiation. And, you know, the cancer advances and treatments they have now have been amazing. And they were amazing, but this was 1992. So it's not what it is now. It was, it was pretty invasive. I mean, I would say I lost probably 25 pounds. I lost all my hair. And I also just lost my identity. Um, all of a sudden, I wasn't a baseball player anymore. I was, you know, a cancer patient. And I was kind of like, well, who am I and what am I going to do next? Because, you know, I was on a trajectory to potentially play professional baseball after that season. And, and now that was kind of, uh, you know, definitely derailed and it didn't look like it was going to happen anytime soon. So basically after I, uh, you know, finished chemotherapy and radiation, what, what got me through that really rough time is I just wanted to get back on the field again. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, uh, a men's league, kind of like the Boston park league in my hometown of Albany, New York. And so I trained like, Rocky Balboa getting ready to fight Ivan Drago to get ready to play in the Albany Twilight League in 1994 after two years off the field. And I was able to do that. You know, it was tough because the cancer treatments were, were rough, man. I, you know, it hurt to swing a bat. I couldn't throw overhand. I threw sidearm like the entire time. And, but I was back on the field and, you know, I hit 345 and I was a league all star. And I was like, all right, I can do this. Like I'm back. I'm not 100% back, but I'm, I'm getting there. From there, uh, well, at the same time, I was also coaching American Legion baseball in Scotia, New York, and I was playing fast pitch softball and I was working as a landscaper. So there you have it. But um, I got the opportunity to, uh, uh, I got an offer for my first paid coaching job at Lassen College in Susanville, California, California Junior College Baseball. And I drove my Plymouth Sundance, like 1988 Plymouth Sundance from Albany, New York to Susanville, California, up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Took me five or six days and I got there and that was my first coaching job. I'm like 22, 23 years old at the time. You'll love this, but I collected California junior college players that entire year. And I brought a team of them back to the Northeast for this new team that I had created called the um, Electric City Giants in the Mountains Collegiate Baseball League. I stashed half of them in my mom's basement. I stashed like the other half in like friends' houses and stuff like that. And we just took this league by storm with these California junior college kids. Um, from there, I actually got an opportunity to play in Australia. Um, so, you know, it's funny because someone said to me a couple of years ago, like, KG, you're so lucky. Like, how, how do you get all these amazing baseball opportunities? And I was like, lucky? <laughs> I went where the opportunities were. You know, I could have stayed in Albany my whole life and, and Albany's a great place, but you know, if there was even the slightest hint of an opportunity, like I was going to go, I was going to drop everything. So I went to Australia, sight unseen, paid my own way, no guarantee of a roster spot. And I was kind of like, okay, I'm here. You want to see what it looks like? Hit me some ground balls. Put me in a hitting group. Let's go. But anyway, that was enough to uh, sort of get a little bit of a, a working baseball resume going. From there, you'll love this, but I showed up in Mesa, Arizona, at Cubs, Chicago Cubs minor league spring training. And I just kind of like hung around, kind of like, <laughs> Just like, yeah, you know, yeah, show I, up. Just, yeah just I was kind of like, hey, you know, if you want to let me out there and show you what I can do. I've got will travel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I was couch surfing and, and that whole thing. But, you know, I was too young to know any better. And But from there, I was able to sign um, to play uh, independent ball. So I signed with the Southern Minnesota Stars of the Prairie League of Professional Baseball. The ownership group was Tom Glavin, Steve Avery, and John Smoltz of the Atlanta Braves. And the manager was Greg Olson, who was their catcher, who had been their catcher with the Atlanta Braves. And so I did, I got there early. I I sold uh, 
anything that would bring in a few dollars. I sold season ticket packages. I, cor I sold corporate partnerships, you know, outfield signboards, light towers, uh, patches we would put on our jerseys. I wrote press releases. I knew everybody in Austin, Minnesota by the time that season started. Um, awesome. And, you know, the season started and I was able to play and I hit 311 that year playing the middle infield. And I was like, I'm going to do this forever until they take the bat out of my cold, dead fingers. Um, and, and Chris, you know, you can relate to that because you, you sure. spent like, yeah. seven seasons in independent ball. And, and Bobby, you did that. You uh, did the independent ball thing as well. But unfortunately, that winter, I was home for a little bit in my hometown of Albany, New York, and a little something reappeared on my chest X-ray. Uh and I wasn't back to square one, but, you know, I was back in the hospital with a pretty invasive surgery and some treatments. Um, I knew I was done playing and that was uh, disheartening, but an amazing thing happened. The general manager of this team I've been playing for called me and he's like, KG, it's such a bummer that you can't play anymore. How would you like to manage the team? And I was like, wait, what? Okay. <laughs> so at that point, I became- How old were you at that point? I was 27 and I was the youngest manager in all of professional baseball at that point. Wow. And I had uh, guys crazy. that were older than me. Yeah, I had guys that were older than me. I, I had guys who had been in the big leagues. I had uh, Juan Berenguer, a.k.a. Senior Smoke, was on our roster. He was our, our number one starter. And uh, I was the Prairie League Manager of the Year in, in 1997. Not shocking that you won Manager of the Year. It, it, uh, you know, it, it's so funny because I didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, you just kind of, you know, one thing I always say is you spend like, half of your life not ready for the opportunities that come your way. And then you spend the next half of your life, maybe like two experience for the opportunities that come your way. Um, I was definitely not ready, but you know, you don't say no, you just, you got to get in there and do it. Right. Um, but uh, so from there, I got kind of a promotion. I was hired to manage the Adirondack Lumberjacks in the Northeast league of professionals. Yes. yes. And, uh, you know, this was $16,000 in benefits. And I was like, let's go. Felt like a million. I mean, I was making $1,500 a month for the duration of the season managing the Southern Minnesota Stars. So this was a big deal. And now I'm like, I'm going to do this forever. Like, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. You know, my, my wife, uh, Tina, and I had our first child at that point, Katie. And it didn't take long to, to recognize that, uh, you know, that life was not conducive to being a very good parent. So I segued to the college ranks. Uh, we were at the University of West Alabama for two years. And then I landed at Amherst College, where I got to coach with a guy named Bill Thurston, who was an amazing coach, been there for 44 seasons when all was said and done. And I was there 2000 through 2008. Um, got my, my graduate degree in education with a concentration in English at UMass Amherst, grinded that out while I was there. And that led to this opportunity. I got to come here at Phillips Academy Andover, probably, you know, the most prestigious uh, private school in the country. Um, but I took over the baseball program and, you know, I'm a faculty member and a dean in the office of admission and run a dorm. And we've been here for 13 years now uh, to that since uh, July of 2008. So that's the spark notes version of my journey. And there's a million stories attached to each stop, yeah. but yeah, that's, that's basically in a nutshell, how I got here. And look, I, I got to come visit uh, the school the other day and I obviously, you know, People talk about Phillips Andor around here. I know a lot of good players that have come to your program. My nephew wanted to try, probably academically not in a position to do it, but I'd never been to the school and I was blown away the other day. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you are the coach there and that you have the resources that you have. And because I know that they're being used in a way that, it is really good for the game. It's really good for the kids that come through your program blown away. And you told me a little known fact, uh, social network was so most of it. The Harvard scenes were filmed at Phillips Andover. That's how great of a place it is. And is that true? 
Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I love that movie. Second of all, I did not know that at all. That's yeah, crazy. They, filmed, they filmed some of the Harvard scenes right on our campus. Um, <clears> so that was pretty cool because we got to be around it. It happened while school was in session. And then we had access to the filmmakers as well. We, we sort of pulled them into our curriculum and, and our, our kids got to be around them. So that was a really neat opportunity. Did you get to meet Justin Timberlake? He was <laughs> around. I was like, hey, I think I that's know. Justin Timberlake. But yeah, he wasn't around in the Harvard scenes. I, I wasn't I so think. bold. Yeah. Yeah. Timberlake was in Kansas City one time when I was there. And I, I love Justin Timberlake. Just think he's awesome. And the one thing I, I noticed in Kansas City was the hotel. I think it was in the playoffs, actually. And I was like, man, he's not tall. <laughs> okay. I remember. And I wanted to hang out with him, and, but I didn't. Jessica Biel was just cool. I saw her in the, in the workout room. And like, and I, that was like the first time I think I was like, am I famous? <laughs> because she didn't know who I was. So if she, if him and if they don't know who you are, then you, you can't be famous. But. It's a weird thing. I mean, those are those are like A A A listers. Was like D lister? Is that is that a thing? Is a D lister a thing? Like that's like reality. In Toronto, you're like a Toronto D lister or like a C lister in Toronto. No, I think I get to be in Toronto. It's very it's it's local. Anyway, you'll see people with Colabello jerseys on in Toronto for sure. So yeah, if, yeah that, I, you get enough hits, they'll make anything. Yeah. With your name. It's great. A couple of barrels in the show will do anything for you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the 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 thing that was so impressive to me is like um, about your school. Like, I feel like in terms of facilities and resources from an athletic standpoint, probably as good, if not better, than any high school in the country. If not, I mean, short of going to the West Coast or the South, where and Bobby's in Texas, so he sees a little bit of it. But I was so happy to see your field and to talk a little bit about like the principles that you've instilled in the program, because it it would be so easy for a lot of those kids to come through and, and really just kind of take advantage of it. Right. In the sense that, Oh, like we, you know, we have this place in school, but like, talk to me a little bit about like getting that job. Right. And, and what have like become kind of your core principles, because I know that's something we talked about and something I, I take very seriously and I really appreciate it about you. Oh, well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. But, uh, you know, arriving here, the challenge for me that was appealing was, all right, I'd managed in pro ball. I'd managed in college ball. I'd done the college summer league coaching thing. You know, I'd have a playing experience that I had, but I hadn't really coached high school kids. So I was like, what can I come and offer these kids that would make me unique in this space? Like, what have I been exposed to that I can deliver to them so that we're coaching these high school kids, not necessarily at the high school level, you know, we're doing stuff that they will, you know, be exposed to when they get to high school or what, when they get to college baseball or when they get to pro professional baseball after that. And so that was the, the real fun thing about just thinking about, you know, my, my place here in the baseball world. Um, and it's been like an airplane gradually ascending off a runway. Um, you know, when I, when I first got here, we had a program that was stocked with, with awesome kids who are now physicians and, you know, elected public officials and working on Wall Street and doing amazing things in, in uh, community service and social justice issues, you name it. Um, but I wouldn't say we, we had a program that was stocked with, with like baseball dudes. Uh, you know, and I define baseball dudes as kids that like play baseball in the summer. And so I, you know, I enjoyed coaching that group and they, they sort of graduated. And then um, 2012 was one of the first teams we had that was, you know, kids who play a lot of baseball in the summer who were also an academic match for the institution, because that's the first and foremost thing that has to be in place or else nothing else matters. 
And then we've been rocking and rolling since then. And, and along the way, what I really wanted to do was systematize how we work with these kids. So instead of like just telling them, hey, leadership, and you need to be a leader, you know, we now clearly define what that means in our program. Instead of saying like, hey, you need to play hard, we clearly define exactly what that means in our program. And we have this cool tradition that I dreamed up one day, and we have this rock out by our right field foul pole. It's a boulder. And it has a plaque dedicating our facility. We play on Phelps Park after Mr. Phelps, who was an alum in the, in the 40s. And then uh, we have uh, the front railing of our dugout, and we call it rock to rail. So when our players come out of the, you know, the athletic center where they, where they change into their baseball gear, they stop at that rock and they kind of rub the rock and they think about you know, what they want to accomplish that day or say a little prayer or whatever they got on their minds that might be inspiring. And then they're required to at least be on a light jog from that rock all the way to the front rail of our dugout. So rock to rail, you know, that run every day, it symbolizes like, you know, we're going to, we're going to work hard today and, and it's going to happen at a certain pace. And, you know, we're going to invest energy in it. You know, we could, we could walk that distance, but now we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to do a little bit extra today. And then rock to rail is, uh, you know, it represents the space between that rock and that rail and what we take care of every day in terms of, you know, the things that we can do well that require no baseball ability or, or, or talent, it just it requires you to, to work hard and play hard. And that's, you know, everything from hitting the field running to playing with enthusiasm to sprinting everything out. You know, we make sure that we're on and off the field in 12 seconds. You know, we hit unselfishly and situationally with like runners on third base less than two outs. Um, we always win pregame. We make sure when we stretch, it looks a certain way. When we take infield outfield, it looks a certain way. You know, our guys are receptive to learning. Uh, they know if they're on time, they're late. Their body language is really important. You know, we are never a, a palms up team. Like, oh, woe is me. We're always like a palms down team. You know, like, all right, I got this. You know, we, we tell them our bench is made of lava. You know, no, no one's on our bench because you're up on the rail paying attention and cheering for your teammates and, and gaining information. So, you know, a little bit about sportsmanship. But we have 21 on-field core values as part of Rock to Rail because there's 21 outs in a high school baseball game. And they have this, this document on their dorm room walls or their, or their walls at home if they're a day student. It's on our dugout wall. They get daily texts from me reminding, of, reminding them of our, our core values. And, uh, you know, we just feel like because of this, 99% of the time we arrive at games because and we have the advantage because we are doing all this stuff that maybe other programs aren't thinking about so much. Those standards to me are everything. And it, it, it comes down to like one fundamental thing for me which is unbelievable is you create accountability right you're, you're creating a culture of accountability and it defines really how your program goes about its business day in and day out and not to downplay the value of the kids themselves or the play the individual players but essentially at the end of the day baseball is a team sport and now the parts become replaceable in the sense that we have high expectations of every person that sets foot on our field and if you can't live up to those expectations, which, again, really ultimately have nothing to do with your skill set or your ability to play the game, those things will heighten your abilities. Those things will, will take you to a place where you'll be able to play closer to your peak day in and day out and then probably push that peak upward. And that's the stuff that I revere and I think ultimately is part of why over the last seven, eight, ten years, and when I would hear people talk about KG, I was like, I got to meet this guy because – those are the standards to me that it takes to become first and foremost, a great person, right? Second of all, a great teammate. And then like at the bottom of that is a great, like, well, I guess great student next and then great player. And I guess that's kind of my loose order. 
Um, but I think those first three things ultimately define how good you can be as a player because they translate to everything you do in life. So that's, that's awesome to me. And I, I'm, I look forward to be invested in as part of the program. I'll be like a de facto alum. If you want. Like <laughs> I can go, yeah. be like a, I got, Subway alumni. Yeah. They, like coach college coaches are like your quality control. So it's not a real role. I just ask for like a pair of shorts. Yeah. Maybe a beanie. Well, uh, for uh, folks like y'all to have big blue baseball gear, I know that that's important. I'm a huge marketer, like how we look and how we, uh, you know, how we, how we brand our program has always been really, really important to me. And we can, we can talk more about that. Well, it's all, it's all part of it, right? Like it's all, at the end of the day, it's all part of, of defining the culture of who you want to be like. And I think what it comes down to is like, if we're pushing the envelope, we're not, we're not going to be normal. Right. Like we're not going to be mm-hmm. just media. I think it, it like rooted mediocrity. I'm not to say normal is mediocre, but I guess in, in, in most ways it is. And that's why, you know, I want I want players and, and, and programs that are that are trying to push the limits. I saw a thing the other day and it was uh, it, it was related to something we were talking about before the show about hitting. And, this, you know, this conversation is like, well, not everybody's Barry Bonds. So how, why should everybody swing like Barry Bonds? I'm like, if you're not trying to push the limits of who you want to become, it's like the whole, you know, shoot for the moon. That, Cause if you miss you might land among stars, like why are we not setting the bar really high? And then if we miss, like we still did. Okay. You know what I mean? As opposed to like, Oh, you know, just shoot for somewhere in the middle. And then when we don't achieve it. So Anyway, you stand for a lot of things that I believe in, which is why I'm thankful to call you a friend now, which is cool. So. Likewise. Thank you, Chris. And, and you know, it's, it's what we really try to do with these kids is, is sort of game the system. Like, how can we gain advantages again without having to be good at baseball? So we arrive at the field with like 21 things that we're already going to beat you in. Um, so that's, you know, I, we feel like we arrive sort of with a lead, but we play like we have a deficit and two things happen. You know, number one is the returning players get so much of this that I seldom have to like help the new players learn this because they get it from the returning players, which is really, really cool. And uh, so it's kind of become a little bit of a set it and forget it type of thing for me. And the other is, you know, we kind of equate it to playing Monopoly. Uh, Like you play Monopoly and you pass go and you collect $200. You don't have to be good at Monopoly. You don't have to know which hotels are good to buy or which properties to land on. All you got to do is pass go and collect that 200 bucks. And these things that we put out there for them to be good at that take no ability, that's like us passing, going, getting that free money. Awesome. I like awesome. that. I'm, I'm curious to hear about what caused you, like, what was, what was the culture like before you started implementing these? And like, what are the biggest things you've seen as a result of it? You know, it was more about me um, and, and just the, the way that I can be the best coach that I am, that, that it was anything deficient about the kids. I mean, you know, Andover is a really, really selective school like a lot of kids apply and the admit rate is, is really, really low. So the kids we have are, and they've been self-selected as kids who are really good at school. They really like school and they really have a genuine interest in the stuff they're learning. Um, you know, I, I went to an amazing high school, but I would, I would say that that was definitely not everybody at my school. Um, you know, these are kids that really want to come to Andover. Like we're a boarding school. We have kids from 50 States and 46 countries. Um, a lot of local kids as well, but we just don't have kids who are like sent away to school. We only have kids who are like dying to be here. You know, we have kids that love to do stuff outside the classroom. We have kids that are really, really nice. So that's what I inherited. Like they didn't need a lot of molding in terms of character or work ethic for me. 
But, you know, I am always interested in systematizing things. I'm an interesting combination because I want them to let it loose and play what we call backyard baseball. And we have a way that we define that as well. But within that concept, I, I want to have a clear definition of what it means to be a part of our program. And so, you know, I'm always trying to gain that advantage. And, and since, we've, since we started doing that, man, it, it does manifest itself in very cool ways on the field. Well, the, it's interesting the way you said that. So backyard baseball, I love that just as a term because it makes me want to go out and play. And my body does not want to play baseball anymore, but I want to go play backyard baseball. Right. The I've found in business – you have to create structure to work within. And then if you create these confines that are part of a system, you can be creative within that system. And then you're not loose. You're not like just all over the place. You have these guidelines that you're following. And if in a baseball program, if you're setting that culture and you're, you're creating good boundaries, not restrictive, not like Chris has talked a lot in the past about some of the previous teams he played for not being allowed to be himself and being He's walking on eggshells in the clubhouse because he doesn't want to do something wrong. Yeah. Versus just being able to go out there and play and let your athleticism show up, let your joy for the game show up. That's when you play your best. And it's not going out and being reckless. It's not like trying to do crazy stuff and like behind the back throws when you don't need to. Like, just it's not crazy like that, but yeah, it's creating uh, kind of this, these lanes that you stay within so that you can, you can all be moving in the same direction. Yeah. I'll give you an example. You know, we are, our players, and I don't want to give away too much here, but um, you know, our players have the green light when they're on second base to steal third anytime they want, as long as three things fall into place, timing, distance, and anticipation. And we define those three things and we drill them like every day, because this is a huge part of our offense. So yes, they have the green light to make a play without a sign from me, but also, you know, there's some checkpoints that have to fall into place for them to have the freedom to do that. And so it's systematizing, but it's also letting them let it rip. Um, you know, I don't know if you, if you guys grew up like this, I'm a little bit older than y'all. I just turned 52, but in my neighborhood growing up, man, we would just meet at the ballpark at the field. I grew up across the street from uh, the New York state training Academy, where they train all the prison guards for the state of New York. And on the training academy grounds, they had a softball field for the, you know, the guards and the inmates would play softball and they would let us use the field. So it was like me and my friends against you and your friends. And if I wanted to like make a hard turn at first base and get in a rundown, like I would do that. You know, if I want to steal second base, like I would do that. There was no coach. There was no adult there. There were no umpires. There was no one telling me what to do. And I think that's missing today. You know, kids are so structured, you know, they are doing things in indoor facilities and they're getting wonderful in coaching and instruction. You know, they're playing in travel programs where it's a lot of coaches and, and signs and telling you when to do this and when to do that. There's very few opportunities for just unstructured play. And so we, we sort of have robotic kids that when you ask them to just kind of go out and make a play, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do that because they haven't had that in their lives ever. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to give them the freedom to make plays and why I call it backyard baseball is because I want to sort of replicate that part of my childhood that was really, really formative and really, really fun. You know, I think the, the, the there's this like weird subculture in baseball that I've noticed where we're so much better in terms of, you know, metrics and analytics and technology and all this stuff. But we're like worse at letting kids have the freedom to like explore within the game because there's I think there's this perception on their end 
that in order to be good, they have to just hit certain numbers or certain metrics or certain things. And look, you know, call it uh, an an unintended consequence of whatever the hardware and the, and the tech discovery that's happened. But at the same time, like we just don't like, we don't create the opportunity for these kids to have this freedom. And it's like, the biggest thing is like, be okay with making mistakes. And, and the thing that I've been really hammering home with most of the guys that I have a relationship with now is like, you have to be okay with the fact that you stink. Like you just have to be all right with it and be like cool with the fact that you're, you're going to mess up. Mm-hmm. and like learn from it and i would much rather see people err on the side of too much too aggressive uh too free and then like let's like pull the the reins back a little bit and understand why this probably wasn't the right decision here so i love that that you know like giving guys the freedom and at the high school level say hey like you're green just go ahead cuz i don't think people even realize that in at the big league level when people steal bases it's never like the coaches don't give signs like you just play yeah. and i think it takes a certain type of personality and i think it takes a certain type of environment to be in as an athlete so the sooner you're presented with that environment the more prepared you're going to be for the next thing because you have to have those foundations of like i have to just be willing to pay attention to the game and learn from it and then you know it's okay if I mess up and like, you know, we'll get the next one. You know what I mean? We'll get better. I give you an example of that. It was 2014. uh, And we were like one in four to start the season. And we we had a good team and it was getting frustrating. Like we would fall behind, we'd have a deficit. And, you know, they say, if you want to stop a team's running game, you know, take a lead over them. And and we were just kind of like, I was watching the sand run out on these games. And I was like, there's got to be something we can do late in games to make something happen. So we just aren't just like giving up after the fourth inning when we're we're not, you know, when we have a deficit. So I, I sort of researched to the end of the internet and I discovered a guy named Mike Roberts, who, uh, you know, as the head coach of the Katuit Cataliers in the Cape Cod League. And I didn't know who Mike was at the time, but he had been the head coach at University of North Carolina. His son, Brian Roberts, played in the big leagues and was stealing like 60 bases a year for teams like the Orioles and the Yankees. And Mike has uh, some amazing resources. Um, and one is, 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 is jump lead steal breaks. So I'm reading all, I mean, I'm, I mean, I pulled an all-nighter. Like, I can tell you everything that Mike Roberts would ever say on the subject of jump lead steal breaks. And I taught it all to myself in one night. Um, and, and uh, so I, I, it's a, it's a Thursday, we have a Friday non-league game and I, you know, we spend all practice on Thursday instituting jump lead steel breaks. Right. And so basically it's, how do you take your lead? You know, what technique did you use to dive back? If they, if they picked a second base um, timing, like when do I start my break? Um, and it's, you know, it's based on pitchers looks distance. How far do I need to be off second base before the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand to guarantee I will be safe anticipation. I got to watch and know how many looks this cat is doing. Is he a one looker? Is he a two looker? Does he ever do more than two looks? If he doesn't ever do more than two looks, we put a bounty on that second look and we take off before his eyes reach home plate. So we're putting this in. I'm a maniac, man. I'm demonstrating. I'm diving around. I got pictures on the mound. One look, two look. We're jumping back, jumping out. We're teaching him a specific footwork around everything. And I'm like, guys, we got to go. We can't do all this stuff and just like be anchored to second base. Do not be afraid to make a mistake. And we had one of the best players we've ever had in the program, a kid named Peyton Jancy, and he was on second base, and we're playing at Groton. And sure enough, he breaks for third, and he gets thrown out by two steps. 
<laughs> and the whole like bench, my, my, you know, our, they didn't have dugouts. They have outdoor benches and, and they're just like holding their breath. Like, Oh man, KG's going to be mad. And instead I was like, Hey man, that's awesome, man. Great play. Good job. I'm glad you went for it. You know, patted him on the, on the, on the back. And he went back to the dugout and the guys were kind of like, Oh, okay. That's cool. Like I got the freedom to go out there and try and make some plays. If I get thrown out, that's cool. Um, you know, but we're, we're, this is something we're going to do. And, uh, we really got the hang of it. And you ever see that movie, uh, semi-pro with Will Ferrell? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember, remember in semi-pro when they threw the first ever alley-oop drunk and everybody was just like, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> well, we started doing this stuff to teams that they had never seen before. I mean, we were stealing third base six, seven times a game. Wow. And they just didn't know. They'd never seen it before, so they didn't know how to, you know, sort of how to counter it. Um, but, but you know, that was that was a lot of fun, and that became sort of our, our brand of baseball, um, in addition to a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But um, we – I have this method where when they get to third base, we have a quick conversation after they steal third. And we rate their jump. I asked them, rate your jump. Um, and at Andover, run a one to six grading scale. One, no one's getting ones here, but that's the worst you can get. Sixes mean you are really freaking smart. Like you're headed to MIT. Um, so, you know, they get to third base and I ask them, rate your jump. And they say, oh, that was, a, you know, a six or a five or a four or, or a one. And, uh, you know, you, you would think that a six is what you would want to hear from the kid. But a six means actually I had too good of a jump. Like I really just sold out and flipped the coin and took off before the guy even leg lifted. Sure. You, you want to, I teach them like you want to live around like a, a four or a five so that again, timing, distance, and anticipation come into play. Everything falls into place. You're safe, you know, by like a half step or a step, but you also weren't really putting yourself in danger of getting blown up at second. Yeah. I have two, two follow ups to this topic. First is, are you like timing your runners? Are you providing catcher pop times? How, how detailed are you getting with that with the runners? And then yeah, the follow up question is, I want to know what other rabbit holes you've gone down, but let's do the runners <laughs> first. Cause you, you just sparked up and got so excited. I want yeah. to hear about all your all-nighters. Well, two hitting is one. All right. I mean, I've, I was, I've been down plenty myself with the hitting world. So yeah, I'll, I'll well, you went it. down some for me and I just went down yours basically. I mean, I had kids coming into the conference room in my office of admission and I'm showing film of major league hitters, barrel tipping and, <laughs> and turning it and all the call. I mean, so you, thank you for that. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we actually, I mean, everybody times pitchers, you know, home, you know, their, their delivery. I got my, I got my G-Shock here and, you know, I hit the button and whatever, but at second base, we don't really care. It's, um, you know, if they're slide stepping, that's one thing, but if they're lifting their leg, we're, we're more about distance than, than anything else. We know that if we can get out, you know, our, our primary lead is, is about seven steps, you know, it's about, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 feet, we get out to the maximum where if they pick the second base, we got a step, step and a dive and we can get back on their best ever spin move. So that, that's a good thing. So we got our, our, our bets hedged in that way. What kind of and language then, are you using for your runners there? What kind of language? Uh, well, yeah. timing, distance and anticipation is, is, is are, are you, are you talking about, are you giving them wording on the site with the shortstop? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I don't say much actually, cause I don't want to set off any alarms. Um, the one thing I'll do is, you know, you've all seen like when the middle infielder is like holding on, holding on, hold, and, he, and he like goes like this to the pitcher, then he backpedals his position. I just say clear. And that means you automatically extend like five feet because <laughs> there's nobody there anymore. So and, when I, I was a shortstop, so I would, I would always listen to the coach to figure yeah. out what he was saying. 
so that I could figure out like if I gave like a glove flip, I would do a false step back and then sprint in. I would try to bait. I was trying to bait the coach more than the runner. That sounds like playing baseball, guys. Exactly right. That sounds like playing baseball. But instead of instead of timing the pitcher on a stopwatch, what we think more about is how much distance can we gain before the ball comes out of his hand? So we don't cross over for third. We extend laterally with our chest facing the first baseline, facing the pitcher. And so we're, we're we call we do what's called jump lead steel break. So we actually jump out and we're reading what the pitcher's doing as we're jumping out toward third base. And if the timing doesn't fall into, into place, we just jump back and we're ready for a pick. But if we jump out and we hit leg lift um, and we're still jumping out laterally until that ball comes out of his hand, because if that turns into inside move, because we haven't crossed over toward third, we can jam on the brakes and dive back a second. And what we found is this is not an official statistic, but 98.7% of the time when they inside move, there's no middle infielder there. Nobody so I, I tell them, don't panic, jam on the brakes, step, step, dive. And we practice those dive backs incessantly. So it's, it's, it really is about timing, distance, and anticipation. I, I, we just we are really, really minute and specific in how we define those three things. We, we have really systematized it. And then you get a guy on third and you try to launch angle a swing into center field, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I said that as a joke because yeah, you spoke earlier about having uh, unselfish at-bats, team yeah. approach. So getting runners to third base becomes a huge deal. Well, here's the thing about that. You know, we, we, uh, you know, I presented all the national conventions. I'm going to be at ABCA on the main stage in January. I'm super psyched about that. Um, I just got an invitation to present at the Michigan High School Baseball Coaches Association convention as well. And I'm like, these opportunities are coming all over. It's, it's, it's really kind of cool. But you get coaches who are so ingrained in conventional wisdom that it's like, um, you know, you never steal third base with uh, no outs because, you know, you want to give the hitter an opportunity to hit a ground ball to the right side and you'll get them there with less than two outs. You never do it with two outs because like you're going to score from second base on contact anyway. So why would I take that chance? And I'm like, no, like if they give it to you, you take it. I don't care if there's no outs. I don't care if there's two outs. If timing, distance and anticipation fall into place, like we're going, man, I don't care. I'm going to take what they give us. My roommate some pushback on that. You know what I mean? But my roommate, my roommate in high school used to say, we talk about shooting free throws. He was like the best free throw shooter ever. And I learned, I got really good at shooting free throws because of him. Cause he's like, it's free. You might as well take it. Yeah. And I translate that directly to baseball. And, and this kid was arguably like highest baseball IQ player I ever played with from at any level. Right. The least physical player that was, like maximizing every ounce of everything that was in his body kid named Andy Barlow went to Milford high school with me, went to assumption college with me, the best baseball player I've ever played with. And it's Andy Barlow. Let's go. And uh, it's funny because, you know, you know, you're talking about stuff that, that this whole thing is about how do we find competitive advantage in the game? And, you know, you and I, and Bobby, obviously we all know Rich Gedman, how important he was to me in my life. And, these are principles that were instilled in me my first year of independent ball. And they just made me realize that the game is the same at every level. It's the same at every level. Now in the big, at the big league level, like yes, talent is probably maximized. I would say for the most part, but the competitive advantages can be gained in the same ways. We're talking about base running. We've been on, on, on stealing third base for, you know, 20 minutes. And it's, again, it's a, it's a, it's a microcosm of what your program stands for and why you guys are successful because you're finding a competitive advantage there. And this was the same thing that 2005 Worcester Tornadoes did is we're going to put pressure on the other team 
We don't care what the score is. We don't care how many outs there are. We're running 3-1. Everybody in the league knew we were running 3-1. We were running 3-2 all the time. And it didn't matter who was on base. Every guy in the lineup had at least one sacrifice bunt that year. Yeah, I had six. And I was like, I probably bunted never in my life. Right. And I, it's just, it, it's an attitude that ultimately is the thing that, it's the non-measurable in baseball, right? It's the, oh, well, analytics say you shouldn't bunt or you shouldn't do this. But it's a, it's, a, it's a process and it's a mindset about how you bring an attitude to the field every day that is going to put pressure on the other team that nobody can measure. And how many times have you seen that catcher throw a ball in the left field? Or how many times have you seen a shortstop rush a throw or a second baseman do something just a little bit out of character that allows for your team to take advantage of that mistake? Two things that we've discovered is pitchers are really most concerned about making a good pitch toward home plate. Mm-hmm. not super concerned about what's going on at second base. And the other thing is defenses seldom practice a, 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 a catcher clearing the hitter and making a throw to third and that third baseman covering third and catching the ball and making a tag. Like you just don't practice that very much. So we're, we're doing stuff to them that hits them in some soft spots that they just don't think about. Yeah. All right. It's awesome. It's but the challenge, you know, the thing is like, after, you know, years of doing this, everybody kind of knows our brand of baseball now. And, and I, you know, I want to, I don't want to brag, but it really has upped the level of play. Absolutely. For sure. You know, now everybody has to do different things to defend us. And now they're starting to start to co- copy our style of play. Like, wow, if they do that, like, maybe we should do that. That's, that's the best uh, form of flattery. You have us in the camera. Yeah. Absolutely right. Ed used to say that the Can-Am League used to be a softball league where everybody just try to hit homers and, and score runs that way. And, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what Major League Baseball is turning into now. So you want to counteract it? Go back the other way. Start doing little things. Start bunting for a hit. Start hitting against a shift. Start running, stealing bases. And you'll see, like, you're going to become the exception. And I, the one thing I will say is that from a, from a mindset and attitude standpoint, like, the things we're talking about are the things that allow you to, you know, if the culture's there and it exists, it's what's going to allow you to continue to fight through any problem that you face, like any challenge that you encounter. And it's, to me, it's, again, it's a, it's adjustability and accountability that are the two things that I, I kind of live by, you know? Well, the great thing about it is I loved Billy Martin when I was a kid, like he was my favorite manager. Ricky Henderson was my favorite player of all time. And, you know, I just loved that. Like, you know, Ricky Henderson stolen base just totally caught my imagination. And I remember when I was managing in the Northeast League, the Adirondack Lumberjacks, I just, I had this urge, like I wanted to get runners from first to second base, right? I didn't really know how or when, or like, it was just, I was kind of flipping a coin and just giving steal signs, not based really on anything. Um, and it's, it but that's always been in my DNA. Like I want to go, 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 go. Like I always want something going on. I just can't like wait around. And uh you know, the chance to, to be a little bit more of a mature coach and having had some, some more information and some more experience to, to actually systematize these things. So we're not like flipping coins. We're actually like doing cool baseball stuff that has like a method and process behind it. That's, that's kind of always where I knew I wanted to be, but I just kind of had to get there. Like experience and time. That's good. Yeah. I want to know, uh, I want to, I want to see what else has gotten you excited about baseball the way that you just talked about pace running. How about, yeah. Um, you, you were at Amherst. So Thurston was, I mean, that guy's a legend. Like, That's exactly it, where I was going with that. I, I almost went there. I remember in high school, we, there was like a, some clinic who's doing biomechanical analysis and yep. we go in and we're like, this is before anything. Like you couldn't even get video of yourself. Like there are no cell phones back then, Yep. but he was doing like, come in shirt off, yep. throw, doing all this breakdown stuff. 
how much, like, what did you, what were your biggest takeaways from being around him and his processes and systems? And how has that been like a major influence on you? Huge influence. And Bobby, I was at the University of West Alabama at the time, which was a, a, a great experience. I'd never been to the deep South before. There's really something to be said for Southern hospitality. You know, the school is in Livingston, Alabama, which is you know, a small town. Like if you want to go grocery shopping, you go to Meridian, Mississippi. And, uh, but it was great. Uh, probably best known now is the alma mater of Malcolm Butler, the guy that made the uh, interception yeah. for, for the Patriots. Right. So I'm like, Hey, someone now has heard of this school where, where I was at, but I had two job offers from there. I had one at Bowling Green State University. So mid-major division one in Ohio. And the other one was at Amherst college. Um, my wife and I are both from Albany, New York. I had promised her that I would get us closer to home and closer to family. And that checked that box. But I also knew they had this guy named Bill Thurston, who at the time was the world's most preeminent authority on the teaching of pitching and pitching mechanics. You know, he was a consultant with Dr. James Andrews, American Sports Medicine Institute, like, and they were the first guys to put electrodes on pitchers and, and, and film them. And, you know, and he came up with this, this thing called the cocked position drill sequence. And this was this drill sequence that he would use to teach pitchers um, you know, how to, how to, how to throw hard and be safe and hit certain checkpoints and keep yourself free of injury. Um, and coach Thurston during the summers would do two full on video analysis, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And it was everything from current big leaguers to division one college guys to like local high school kids. And I would do all of those with him. Um, and that was one of the things that attracted me to, to Amherst and coach Thurston was I had been a middle infielder. I had never pitched really in my life. I had been really dependent on whoever was a pitching coach on my pitching staff and all the other programs that I've been a part of. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to follow that guy around until I can regurgitate literally everything he has to say about the topic. And to, I used to follow him around with a little notebook and I used to just write everything he said down in this notebook. And he used to kid, he used to be like, one of these days, that's, this is my coach Thurston imitation. He'd be like, one of these days, coach Graber, you're going to have to show me what you're writing in that damn notebook all the time. <laughs> Listen, I have moleskins stacked. With yes. all my notes. Yeah. Yeah. But now I have it all here. Um, and so I, you know, I talk a lot about base running and stuff we do with our offense, but really pitching is the center of our universe now. And it's great because, you know, it used to be only coach Thurston who knew all that stuff that I got from him. But a lot of the stuff that coach Thurston taught is, is, is really widely available right now. A lot of it just, just comes from that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of what we do with our pitchers, man, it's, it's, uh, you know, really intentional about how we, how we teach mechanics, how we have a year long cycle for our pitchers and, you know, with Alan Jager long toss and, you know, our banding routine. Now we're on board with Dr. Josh Heenan uh, and our guys are doing the 90 pound power formula stuff. And he's been a really wonderful resource as well. So that, that was a huge hole that I fell into. I just, just learning coach Thurston's He basically apprenticed me for eight years, which was amazing. Pretty good guy to be under for that Absolutely. long. It was, it yeah. was definitely the right decision. Was he, uh, was there any ever Mike Marshall crossover with him? Or was that they were rivals? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was curious because Mike Marshall was all like the before yes. driveline was a, pre, a pitching brand or a yeah. baseball brand in, in uh, out in Seattle. The driveline was a more of a mechanical or like directional term. And he was doing all the weighted balls, the pronation, the, the really, really wild stuff. Yeah. And I didn't know. I, I mean, Marshall was down in Florida. So being a Northeast kid in the internet didn't really exist back then. Right. Yeah. Um, I had heard through Thurston, through my high school coach, through a kid on my team who got drafted. That was, that was going to be a potential draft pick. So that like he was getting 
pushed to go get an analysis done and I was going to kind of follow him. Um, just it, the, the world is so different now with accessibility to information. And I don't know if that's always a good thing where we were talking earlier about how we got all these robots and everybody's out there trying to do the, have right mechanics yeah. and they're letting other people be their, I called it the gatekeeper for, for, for right the other day where they, they, they need somebody else to tell them, Hey, was that right? Was that good? Mm-hmm. Instead of just taking a swing and feeling it and, and having some kinesthetic awareness to their body or was it a good result? Like, did you hit the ball hard there? Mm-hmm. We have stories with uh, Chris with Ferbs where a kid would hit a double, send the video to their coach and they go, Oh, that's bad swing. <laughs> like, dude, that was a double. You hit a double in the gap. That's great. And then the coach like, nope, it's not good. Our, our barometer forever was, did I get a hit? Like, <laughs> get a hit. And and I, th- that's still my barometer. I like I I fundamentally don't understand how that's changed. Like I don't. At the end of the day, like you have to be good at games. Like we've talked about this, right? The test is the game. If you're not good at games, then you stink. Like it's yeah. like just is that simple, right? So like. I, I, that's the challenge with me. And I, I, I'm sure you're seeing it with high school guys too. Like I'm, I'm dealing more with collegiate players and I try to kind of shy away from high school hitters, even though we're doing some more stuff with them, like in terms of just dialogue, but I, I don't know. I, and I guess this is a question for you, KG, like how do you find like, like proprioception? We talked a little bit about this with Jose a couple of weeks ago. Like, like how do you find that kids deal with like the feelings and, and the emotions that are tied with like trying to explore new things and then still like being like, okay, well, I'm not going to compare myself to everybody else or try to find the right answer. Like, do you see that with your guys? Yeah. You know, I think that as, as you and, and, uh, and Bobby are, are, are well, well aware, like every kid's a little bit different, you know, like, like some kids are really receptive to learning and like, are just always on you, like asking you questions and want to know, like the answers to a lot of really good questions and other kids are, not so receptive to learning because they've had success doing something their own way, or they've, they've had a really good hitting coach who believes in something. And, and so, you know, I, it's just, you know, I try not to clone kids and put everybody into, you know, that's, this is what I used to do with a lot of coach Thurston stuff. Like I had the cocked position drill sequence. And if you didn't hit any, every one of these checkpoints, we were just going to grind until you did. And now I've come to realize that, um, you know, kids are, are, are built differently and they're, they're, you know, as athletes, they move differently. The other thing that I've, I've learned recently is that, you know, some of the things that kids couldn't do, like coach Thurston is a big, um, on stride leg bracing. So in other words, when your stride foot lands down and out flat, you know, you are here. And as you rotate your trunk and come to release, you know, you land on a flexed front knee and it goes from flexed to straight. So your back hip can come up and over. If you can, if you can imagine that. Mm-hmm. So I used to think that like, if a kid couldn't, you know, stride leg brace over that front knee, it was just, you know, bad mechanics or maybe not receptive to learning. But what I came to realize is sometimes it's just, it's a, it's a deficiency in how they move and, and in strength. Um, you know, we need to get that kid throwing some medicine balls. We need to get that kid reverse lunging and, and, you know, put some weight on his back and that kind of thing. So, you know, I have, I evolve every year in terms of like what I teach, but also how I teach, but also understanding that, that kids aren't cookie cutter. They come in a lot of different shapes and forms and, and different kids need different things. The main thing though, is like, they don't care what I know unless they know that I really, really care. So that's the foundation, man. You know, we're a boarding school. We got kids living here on campus. Our day students are from really close by. Like every night we have kids at my kitchen table doing homework and my wife's making scrambled eggs. You know, I'm putting them in the minivan, taking them to Starbucks, taking them down to U-Burger. Um, you know, we have traditions in our program. Like we have the, 
you know, the, the, the 5k fun run where we go on a trail run and then we, you know, we finish up downtown having ice cream and stuff like that. So I just make sure that they're always getting texts and like personal touches for me and we're establishing that relationship. And that way, you know, I can sort of, you know, they, they'll, they'll trust me to give them the stuff that they need for me to help them become better. Baseball Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so you basically just described like why Pelotero exists is trying to sort all this information and make it Absolutely. meaningful for players looking at the individual, not just saying, here's a program that's we're all about is customization, but doing it at scale, doing it fast. Um, I'm curious about your, cause your setup is different than traditional high school. Yeah. Do you have, what are the rules in terms of, of access to players? Do you have, can you work with them year round is uh, and like growing up yeah. in high school, the coaches weren't even allowed to talk to us in the off season. We or we, they didn't get paid we enough. Had a, we had a strength. So they opted out. Like, yeah, it was like, Oh, I got to go coach, you know, cross country or yeah. whatever. Well, we had, so at my high school, we had a strength club, like where we would lift and it was the baseball coach, but it was technically a club that was not baseball affiliated, but you like, you literally weren't allowed to work with the players. What are, what are the rules like at Phillips and how does that play into like the bigger picture of recruiting and, and recruiting players to your school, but also getting players to, to college afterwards. What's that whole dynamic like? Yeah. Any baseball playing kid is going to want to know what's the year long trajectory like for a baseball player at your school. Cause, it, Cause the kid, if they're moving there, they're on campus. That's a different, whole different animal. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, you know, I love baseball, but I was a multiple sport athlete in high school and I still play a ton of sports. I play tennis as often as I can. I played pickup basketball until like four years ago, I had to retire because of a couple ankle surgeries um, you know, uh, football, I mean, you name it, I played it all. Um, and one thing I know about baseball is it's the best game in the world, but there's a good amount of standing around. So I actually believe that playing other sports makes you a better athlete making and becoming a better athlete makes you better at baseball and baseball is a summer game, man, even more so than it is a high school game in the spring, man, you play the heck out of baseball in the summer. And in my mind, that should free you up in the fall and winter to do other things and play other sports and use other muscles and like compete. Um, that said, we have a year-long uh, baseball trajectory that works in tandem with our school's athletics requirements. So, Bobby, we have this athletics requirement that allows us to create a safe space for kids to play multiple sports without the pressure of, like, the baseball coach mandating that they do baseball stuff all year long. And so there are ways our students fulfill the athletics requirement in each of fall, winter, and spring term. And they can play an interscholastic sport, you know, suit up for big blue. Um, they can do an intramural sport, which is like, you know, you and your friends against me and my friends. We're playing intramural soccer, and that's a lot of fun. We have instructional sports where they teach you how to play a sport for the first time, like you've never played it before. You're with other kids who have never played it, like instructional squash is going on right now, instructional tennis, instructional crew. They take you down to the boathouse on yellow school buses and show you how to put the boat in the water and row it as a team. And that's pretty cool. And we have what are called life activities. And that's anything from outdoor pursuits, playground games, power walking, uh, you know, dance. There's a lot of different like activity type things that you can do as well. Zumba, aerobics, yoga, like that kind of thing. Um, I walked by a yoga class the other day. When we were there. Yeah. And, and our, our uh, athletics block every day is like three 30 till five o'clock. So everybody's fulfilling the athletics requirement in some way during that block of time. Um, 
what we're doing baseball wise in the fall, for instance, it, it happens like in tandem with that and not in place of that, if that makes sense. And so on our baseball diamond, which is really centrally located on our campus, like you'll see kids down there, you know, outside of the athletics block or during a free period or after sports are over. And they're doing, we have an eight week long uh, Alan Jager long toss program that we do. So early on during fall term, I teach them the pre throwing band routine and, you know, all the techniques for stretching it out and pulling down on the way in. And that's really gradual and progressive. And that's great. And you'll see kids in our hit and tunnel. We keep the and tunnel up until October 31st, although it's still out there right now, which is great. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we're doing like some, some kind of like what you would call indie work. So, you know, I can be with uh, around the guys in, in very small groups, but the one thing we do is, is we don't do like captain's practices. We don't do fall ball because I don't want anything in place that would, um, deter a kid from like playing another sport. I never want a kid saying, oh, I want to try to run cross country this fall, but you know, I couldn't miss baseball captain's practices because I won't make the team or our coach won't have me in the lineup. So we're, 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 we're kind of having our cake and eating it too in that regard. Um, in the winter, you know, we have a, a large field house called the Snyder Center and it has a hitting tunnel that comes down from the ceiling. You know, we have three portable mounds, stations for tee and toss. We do a lot of video analysis with our hitters and our pitchers uh, during that time. And, uh, you know, they, they, they get to be uh, in that space like Thursday nights and like Sunday mornings for a little bit. But again, it's not mandatory. It's not a team practice. I'm like super like purposefully hands off. They're, they're kind of like doing their thing. Like, like uh, in one of your recent podcasts, Chris, I remember you, you, you were talking about the difference between just like, hey, telling kids to go hit in this space and like what they do. And then just like, just, just putting some like, you know, some, some order in, in like a routine up there. It can be really a life changer for that space. So it, mm -hmm. it's kind of like that type of thing. Yeah. We do a Florida trip during spring break and that's a lot of fun. We take 20 kids, uh, we fly into West Palm, we stay in Port St. Lucie, we play in practice in Fort Pierce and we'll play six, seven games, depending on how much pitching we're bringing. We have a winter long toss programs uh, that, the, that the guys do in our indoor space as well. So yeah, man, we're like an airplane gradually ascending off a runway to get to our season. But you know, our guys are getting a lot of work in, they get a lot of my time, um, but they're also able to do other things as well. And also we're doing the Dr. Josh Heenan strength and conditioning stuff, which is really individually tailored because we do all the, you know, the movement screens, uh, you know, before, before they do that. So they have um, corrective warmups they're doing before they even touch a weight to address, you know, a kid who can't touch his toes or can't turn his head to the left or can't like touch his opposite scap behind his back. So it, it's, it's really cool that Dr. Josh uh, has been great with me and is and really generous with his time and, and puts those. You better listen to this podcast. He's going to really appreciate the fact that you put doctor in front of his name. I'm going to text him after the show and tell him. <laughs> well, he, he gets way too many texts for me. I'm trying not to be a stalker, but that's just, that's who I am. And I, I, I fall in love with something and I'm all in. Well, it's, uh, it's awesome. And I think, I mean, I think it reflects itself in, in the program and the success you've had. It's not an accident. Like, right. It's, it's, it, it, it's it's very much on purpose and and i think that's you know part of the reason why we're we're on this phone call and part of the reason i look forward to doing stuff with you guys in any capacity and just carrying on a a, a, a baseball friendship and a friendship outside of that too which is you know obviously i think the the more important part but that baseball brings you together like you said we're lifers on this on this uh on this podcast we're not uh I've tried to get away. I just can't. Just, yeah. Well, Chris, nothing. I first started hearing about you when I coached your uh, your nephew Joey Rubin with the with the uh, man. Roughnecks when he was a 15 U man, and he was great. And Joey's he used, uh, he used to invoke your name all the time. Yeah, he's a special cat. That kid. He, uh, yeah. Hey, how'd you do yesterday? Uh, all right. And then two for three. Hit a homer. What would you do? What'd you do the day before? What What day was that? Um. Yeah, that's two for two, I think. I can't remember. Like, 
Nice. But just like super high baseball IQ and just yeah. very, I think he's like so proper for just baseball because he just has a short memory. And I don't know if like, I want to tell him he's like kind of dumb, but that's mean. Like, and I'm like, it's great. Just be, just be like you are. And that's, I was lucky enough to, I don't really do much with Joe. I just kind of give him a little thing here and there and let him be creative. You know, one reason Joe liked me is that wasn't long after I, I fell into that, that deep well of Tukes hitting and, uh, and he had a lot of coaches kind of like trying to change his swing and, and do this and that. And I was the one coach who's like, dude, I love your swing. Just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's part of the problem. Like you, how do you, how do you encounter that stuff as a kid nowadays? And that's, you know, I've text with kids back and forth. It's like, Oh, I'm like, how's the fall going? Oh, well, they're, you know, it's going good. First it's going good. And then I'm like, okay, what does that mean? They're like, well, they're trying to change my swing. I was like, it can't be going that good if they're trying to change your swing already, you know? Well, it's one uh, of the things, Bobby, I really like about the idea of Pelotero. And, and I think one way that you put it is like, there's a lot of folks collecting uh, data and people are not using it or they're using it in totally different ways. And it's just confusing. And that's the last thing any of us wants is like to confuse kids, um, I think. And that's, that's what can happen when they're getting information from a lot of different people. Yeah. <clears throat> Something we're working really hard on right now is creating just an understanding of why the metrics matter. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at like, all right, you want to hit the ball harder. What are all the things that need to go into that? And where do you stand? Like what's your deadlift? What's your bench press? What's your bat speed? What's your, if you're using a bat sensor, what's your impact momentum? And then how does that actually translate to your performance? Because we can collect all this data and we can write it all down, but if we're not making it meaningful and we're not making it actionable, we're just sticking numbers in a spreadsheet that nobody's going to look at ever again. And, and not to mention, if you look at them all as if you look at them all as one-offs, right? Like none of them are really the defining characteristic of of a hitter. Like I, to this day, I haven't seen a metric or an, an analytic or whatever that defines how good a hitter is or can be. Yeah. Right? Sure, hitting the ball hard is important. When do you hit the ball hard? How do you hit the ball hard? What pitches do you hit it hard on? So what it comes down to is like, I don't, I don't care if you hit a ball 110 miles an hour in the cage, you know, off a flip when, you know, you know, it's coming, you know, it's coming and you get as many do overs as you want. Like, I care how often you can hit a ball 95 in a game, right? Like I care how, how often you can hit a ball hard independent of location. So it's really just trying to structure all those metrics and, 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 and help kids understand like, the, the, again, the, the 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 puzzle that we're trying to solve is how do we get good at playing? How do we get adjustable in games to deal with the situations that are going to come up yeah, on any yeah. given day, right? So. Bobby, I heard you talk one time about your time in the Cape Cod League as as a hitting coach, and and uh, you know, you I think you mentioned um, you know your instinct was not to come in and, and 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 like guns blazing and like this is our program and this is how we're going to hit and all that. You really took some time to like you know, get to know the guys individually and, and get a sense of their routines and, and then, you know, figure out how you can, you can help them be their best selves at the plate. And, uh, you know, I had sort of a similar experience in the Cape Cod League this past summer. I was, I was kind of the early work guy, you know, and, and mainly at first, I just wanted to be there with them to have somebody that would be in the tunnel with them. And, and I really wanted to get to know, cause you got guys coming to you from Texas A&M and Arkansas and, you know, University of South Carolina and Wake Forest and you name it. And uh, obviously amazing coaching staffs at those schools. And what I really wanted to learn from each of them was like, you know, what's your routine? And then I got to know all their routines, which, you know, some are similar, some are, some are a little bit different and, uh, and sort of get in sync with them in that way. And also steal a bunch of stuff that I was learning from them about how they were rolling in those programs. 
It's been a, a very common theme with all the, we are pretty heavy hitting podcast, felt <laughs> pickle, but just a, a very common theme is like, you got to let people fail. We, I think with Pete Fatsy, when Pete was on, uh, who's now the hitting coach for the Red, the, the head hitting coach for the Red Sox, just, you got to let people come to you. You can't always just f- go to them and say, got to do this. You got to make this change. I heard a story about Brandon Belt in which I think is very appropriate for this, where in high school, he got there as like a fresh, he's like the stud freshman. He comes in, he's really good. And the coaching staff was like, you know, we don't like his swing, but he's really good. So we'll wait until he fails and then we'll make a change. Right. And he just never failed. He just <laughs> never failed. Okay, yeah. He just kept hitting and kept hitting. And so it's like, why would you change something? Yeah. If it's working. And I've had that experience when I'm at a facility up in New Hampshire, where I'd have like high school coaches coming to me, complaining about the kid who's hitting third on the team. You know, he's in the three spot. He's leading the team in every major offensive category. And they're talking to me like, Oh, I don't like his barrel tip. I don't I'm like worry about the kid hitting eighth. This yeah. kid's leading your team. He's leading the league in everything. And you're worried about him. Worry about the kid that's not hitting. The defining characteristic is being good at the game. If you're yeah. good at the game, it doesn't matter. I don't care if you hold the bat backwards. You want to hit with the handle up? I, it don't matter. Like, yeah. if you're good and you're helping the team and, like, that's it. Mm-hmm. Why, why are we trying to solve these other problems? Like, the, the, it feels like the hitting world is trying to solve these problems that don't exist, yeah. right? Like, a lot of the times. They're trying to solve a problem. Oh, well, I don't like the way he takes flips. And I'm like, who cares? Yeah. Like, literally doesn't matter. <laughs> I've heard a term recently used called hitter-ish. Like, it's just really important to be hitter-ish. Yeah. Like, going up there with confidence and having presence and having an approach. I mean, that that you can have, like, kind of a jacked-up swing, but he'll still have success if you're, like, a hitter-ish kind of guy. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Bobby, an example of what you were just alluding to is, is um, you know, I coached J.D. Martinez in, in the summer of 2008, and I had him with the Saratoga Phillies of the New York Collegiate Baseball League. And JD was the best hitter I've ever been on the field with, bar none. I mean, he I mean just- hey, you and I were on the field last week. It doesn't count. <laughs> I didn't get to see a swing it though, Chris. You know, yeah, I know. No, no. Well, we'll make that happen. I'll come hit this front. No, he would just like flick balls off scoreboards in that league. And I was like, dang, this dude could hit. Um, but his swing is totally different than it was then. I mean, his swing changed while he was in pro ball. And, you know, actually there's some articles about you, Bobby, that, that actually reference like his swing change, like yeah. in the same article and they'll link yeah, to yeah. it. About, like, yeah. JD, he's, so. he's, uh, a big time swing change guy, yeah. um, that his, his story has been very well documented. And the, the crazy thing about every swing change guy and Chris is in this conversation too, they were all really good hitters that had holes in their swing that when they got to the big league level against the best pitching in the world, yeah. they, they were exposable. So they had to figure out how to cover that hole yeah. just to get back to the level that they were able to perform at against lesser competition. Like every, like every single guy that's the swing change guy, yeah. they all raked in the minor leagues. It's not like they went from hitting 220 in double a to hitting 320 in the big leagues. They hit 320 in double a, and then they went to the big leagues and probably hit 250, 240. And they're like, Hey, I got a hole in my swing. I got to cover. And then they fixed it. Yeah. And it all came like, just I'll chime in there. It all came from like internal desire. It wasn't, it wasn't somebody jamming it down my throat. Now in our situation, me and Bobby's like, it, he just happened to be like persistent enough to get me to listen. And he had the platform because he's my friend, but Donaldson went and explored on his own. Martinez went and explored on his own judge Turner, all these guys, like they all like, 
because we want to be good. So it yeah. starts with, I, okay, the game is telling me whether I'm good or not. This is a follow-up question for you, KG. How many of your guys care about what they hit or what their average is? You know, what's interesting is we don't actually post our statistics like on a website. There's no yeah. like link that they go to. I always wanted to know what I was hitting. So I will yeah. print them out and post them up every once in a while. But yeah, no, I've never had a kid ask me like what his stats are. What, how do they hold themselves? Like it, just generally speaking, and if you have an example, are, do any of your guys like hold themselves to a certain standard in terms of like, what is their standard for defining good? Did we win the game? Did I have productive oh, yeah. bats? You know, is that like, what, do you, what would you say is like, no, we have a, a whole system of game goals. Like if we do this and the other team does this, we win 100% of the time. And quality at-bats is one of those. And, you know, we're not unique that we chart quality at-bats. Sure. You know, it's basically seven ways to have a good at-bat that don't mean you have to have had a hit. So it's you sure. know, you draw a walk. You could, you could see seven pitches from that pitcher. You could move a runner over. You could sacrifice. You could hit a hard hit ball. Um you know, and how, how teams define what a hard hit ball is might be different, but you know, the quality at bats thing is how we define success in our program. Would you say more young kids now are more in tune with what their batting average is or how many home runs they hit or how many home runs they care to hit? I guess we, we don't hit many home runs. We play in a cavernous ballpark that yeah. which you saw Chris. The big boy yard. Yep. Oh <laughs> man. Yeah, for sure. Bad weather too. And then in the cold weather, impossible. Yeah. So we're, we're really a, a line drive program. Um, you know, we want them uh, hitting the ball hard towards center field. So if they're a little bit, you know, early, we're, we're good. If they're a little bit late, we're good. You know, we're trying to use the big parts of the field. Sounds very hitterish. Yes. And also just being hitterish. Like we actually practice like what their routine looks like going from the on deck circle into the batter's box and like how it looks when they waggle their bat. Like we, we, we rehearse the product that they're putting out there for public consumption because I want them all looking hitterish. It's awesome. It's really good stuff. Yeah, it's always a fun one too because guys do you know they they can kind of have fun with it and show their personality and stuff like that. Yeah, you're allowed to show your swag on the field. Just I mean, not in like a not when you're down ten one in the sixth and you hit a solo homer and you throw your bat into orbit. Like that's like look good while you're walking the plate. Like that's great. Also, like you know, I don't know. A lot of kids have never thought about like why do I waggle my bat this way while I'm waiting for the pitcher to get into his leg lift. You know, do I do this? Do I do this? It's amazing it's like where if you, yeah, it's amazing where if you present them with like some version of critical thinking, like to answer a question, they'll actually be able to explain it or understand it. But we don't like generally speaking, people don't want to go to those depths because there's multiple layers to hit. There's so many layers, right? Yeah. Like the way, it's intertangled web of crap and everything matters. Yeah. And nothing matters at the same time, but it all matters. Right. So it's, it's interesting where I, I feel like the biggest thing that you're doing is you're allowing players to think differently or to think about different things that maybe they wouldn't necessarily really realize if, if nobody presented it to them. And that's yeah. kind of my contention is I don't want the, the reason you don't know to be because I didn't say it out loud. So now I'm trying to say everything out loud and give everybody a chance to hear it, whether they want to listen to what I have to say is now th it's, it's up to them. You know? Yeah. Well, our, our guys are either um, sort of um, rehearsing their bat path or they're kind of just getting in rhythm. They're, yeah. they're really doing one of the one or two of those things, but we, we, you know, we just make sure they have a reason for what they're doing. Bobby, yeah. I got a question for you. I have a yeah. really good college coach friend. And he tells me that like, man, hitters are just dudes that can hit. He's like, you, you can give a guy a few tips here and there, but 
you know, every, every good hitter, you know, has been that dude who's always been like the best hitter on his team. So he's like, what, what, what do you, what do you think about that theory? Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, there's, there's, I think I talk about the, uh, ability to pay attention as being like a major, major skill in the game. And, um, you must know Tucker Frawley when he was at Yale. And Heck yeah. Good friend of mine. Yeah. Tucker's awesome. And I, I chatted with him at ABCA a couple of years ago about how at, at Yale you have, you know, you, to get to Yale, you're a one percenter. You're, I mean, it's Yale. It's and then within, slow. within that 1%, you have a 1% and within that 1%, you have a 1%. So like this, the filter to get to like the best of the best, it's, it's a tight squeeze to get there. So ability to pay attention and ability to care in little tiny moments where like you get, you get a, a, a breaking ball that you're a little bit out in front of, and you don't let yourself roll over. You get a fastball that's on you a little bit and you don't let yourself miss under. It's like things like that, I think are so hard to communicate and so hard to transfer over. If you don't care, if you are willing to let it in a back get away versus grinding every single pitch, um, you know, do you battle in moments where like it's eight, nothing in the last inning of the game and you're, there's two outs and you just, are you going to throw that bat away? Or are you going to push through it? And what makes somebody care in those moments? I think that that, what makes somebody care there, like you got to have hand eye, you got to have athleticism, you got to have some, some head for the game and understanding how a pitcher's trying to get you out, but you got to care in those little tiny moments, those little micro moments of the game. You have to care enough to win those. Number one quality of being a great hitter. You can't be okay with making outs. Like you have to there. And there's a fine line, right? Because some people say fine line between genius and insanity. I wasn't the best hitter on my high school team from Babe Ruth on to, to probably till my, my sophomore year in college, I wasn't the best hitter on my team. And all I kept shooting for was that I wanted, I knew to be the best player on the planet. I had to be the best player on my team. And I kept finding ways, but I like, it starts with like, I hate making outs. So if I hate making outs and I, I can, I can continue to like refine and, and get better at those things. So I think I, this is going to sound kind of like stupid, but I, I feel like I, I wasn't born a hitter. I was, I was built into one. Like I watched a, a really cool interview that Bonds did the other day. Um, and it was 2018. It was with, uh, uh, a lady that worked that did the, the the radio or PA for the Giants, and it, it's a very like he's sitting out in, on a patch of grass, and it was awesome because he talked about like getting a master's in baseball and how he took a little from Willie and a little from his dad and then a little from Willie McCovey and a little from Pete Rose and a little from Tony Gwynn, and and I that's like that's the, I, I sent it to every college hitter I had. I went down this four hour talk about rabbit holes. I watched, I looked at Barry Bond stuff for four hours the other night because, you know, say what you will about the guy, but I mean, we're talking about like masters, educator, instructor, like, and he said, I, he kept talking about how like everything was about living up to Willie and my dad's standards. And, and like, think about that, right? Like, Willie Mays might've been the best player of all time. And that, <laughs> he's like, I had to live up to that standard. <laughs> Um, there's no reason not to do those things. So I think all the squad, all the skills to hit are acquired other than hand-eye coordination. And I think that's probably acquirable too, but like you have to fall in love with it. I think, I think, I don't know. Well, I mean, the first time I read Ted Williams book, 
you know, the science of hitting, that was the life changer for me up until that point. And I read that book in high school up until that point, I was just kind of like see ball, hit ball, you know, defend against whatever comes out of that pitcher's hand and figure it out on the way to home plate. Yeah. Whereas Ted, you know, just sort of unlocked the cheat code for me on, on how to, how to pay attention. For all the people that say, keep it simple. Like Bobby said, was talking about this the other day for all the top people that talk about, keep it simple. Like you're almost doing a disservice to hitters. If you say, keep it simple. Yep. Right. Like, sure. There are moments when it's like, Hey, like you're overwhelmed too, everything's going too fast. Yeah. Okay. There's a ball coming. I'm going to get on the heater. Cause like, I, I think there's a threshold where you cross that line and it's like too much and then you have to back off, but it's always a balancing act. You know, that was always- my favorite thing about the Cape Cod league, Bobby was uh, after coaching high school for so long. Um, just the conversations those guys are having Different. You know, as, as one at bat is over and that guy's coming back into the dugout and guys are asking them questions and the information that they're sharing with one another. And, you know, even when there's a pitching change and it's like, oh yeah, I saw this guy throw in the SEC, uh, you know, and there's a lot of information now because, you know, you have these subscriptions to that have every pitch that this dude threw during, during the college season and what percentage and yeah. the spin rate and all that stuff. So that, that was probably one of my favorite things was just being a fly on the wall for a lot of those conversations. Those the, the, my favorite thing when, when, uh, when I talk to professional hitters, especially like really good major league hitters is I always ask them, like, what did you see on the ball? Like, how did, how did you see the ball? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's crazy to me how some of them will talk about spin. Some will talk about trajectory. They'll talk about depth. They'll talk, but they'll, they'll dig into their process. And it's, it's such a, it's such an unobtrusive way to get somebody to talk about hitting because it's not, there's like no ego attached to it. They don't like, nobody talks about it. It's like, Hey, what do you, who do you see really well? Or what guy don't you see really well? And what, like, what's going on with that? Yeah. Um, and I love talking two strike approach with guys too, just to see. Uh, I love the guys that talk about shrinking the zone versus expanding the zone. It's like, oh, I'm only going to swing middle two thirds. I'm going to, I'm giving away the edges. So then I won't chase. I'm like, oh man, I wish I knew that when I was. A that was a game changer. I try to protect everything. I chased. That was everything. a game changer for me. I've never, it's 2015 KG. I don't think I told, I'm, I've, I have like, not, it's like August and I have like 80 punchies and it was fine like i was i was raking so it didn't really matter but i'm thinking to myself i'm looking at my numbers one day just randomly right and i'm like i have 80 strikeouts and 23 of them are on three two pitches that are outside the strike zone and i'm like is that real life because like i would feel myself go from oh two and i grind it out i'm like get to three two and i'm like challenge count here we come so I'm talking to Brooke Jacoby, our hitting coach. I'm like, Brooke, this is ridiculous. I have 23 punch outs on three, two pitches that are balls. Like, why don't I just stand there on three, two? And he, and like, I'm like, why do they throw their best slider on three, two? And he's like, yeah, you know, like, but how many hits do you have on three? I was like, I don't care. That's 23 walks that I should have. I'd be a one-to-one walk to strikeout right now. Yeah. And uh, Cliff Pennington of all people heard the conversation and he pulls me aside and he's like, Hey, I got something for you. I'm like, what do you got? He's like, with two strikes, just look down the middle. And I said, what? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? I got to protect the whole strike zone. Like, what do you mean look down the middle? He's like, Chris, by nature, you're just going to expand off down the middle anyway. So like, it's two strikes. You know, there's two strikes. Like you're, this is like, you're at that extreme where you're trying to cover the whole box. So automatically you're going to go off it. He goes, just look right down the middle. It's like, all right, what's the worst thing that happens that night? Three, two pitch. I looked down the middle and it was an edge slider that was like strike ball. And I walked and I was like, this is, I was like, this is so stupid. Like, it's so easy now. Like, why didn't I do that before? I'm 31 now. I'm there's 30. I was going to be 31 years old. I'm like, man, if somebody just said that when I was 14, I have like 
400 less strikeouts in my life. I was watching a game uh, this this past season MLB and they were given the numbers for three, two pitches and what kind of pitches they were. And dudes just don't throw fastballs three, two. They won't. It's, not, it's no longer a challenge count baseball. They'd rather walk you. They'd Absolutely. rather walk you. It, this is funny to go with that story. Pennington was telling me that Brendan Ryan, like Brendan Ryan, if we were ranking like all time hitters in the big leagues, he's got to, he might be in the bottom hundred, no offense to him. Cause he was a great defender, <laughs> but like he literally said to Pennington one day, he's like, Hey, if I get to three, two, I'm auto taking auto taking. He's like better off. And he said, like, he had like, uh, it was something like 80 or 93, two counts that year. And he walked 54 times Yeah, on those, on those counts. Like it was crazy. And I, I'm like, I've been doing this all wrong. I've been trying to get hits my whole life. Chris, so, let me ask you a really specific hitting question. Cause I want to take advantage of this sure. amazing resource I have. And that is when you are a hitter in the batter's box and that pitcher is on the mound getting his sign all the way from sign receiving to release, where, where are your eyes and, and how, do, how does where your eyes are focused shift during that? Uh, so I, I, when I, this was, this happened to me early on in my professional career, I started learning about soft to hard focus and things like that. I started really paying attention to it because I, I don't think, if you honestly asked me when I was 20, I probably wouldn't, I, I didn't really know anything. Right. I wouldn't even have known how to answer the question. So I started really thinking about it and prying into it and like just learned about why soft focus was important and not staring at one spot for a long time. So what I started doing is I, I would hear guys tell me, I listened to Bonds and he talked about looking out towards shortstop as a left-handed hitter. So I started trying to look at the middle infielders, but I, I, I would panic that the pitcher would start doing something and I wasn't looking at him. So what I did is I started, uh, I kind of started with like a very wide lens at the pitcher's mound Mm -hmm. and then slowly like kind of take that in as the pitcher is like getting into his windup and start looking at his feet. Mm -hmm. And then as his windup or depending if it's stretch or, or, or windup, I would start like drifting my eyes up to find, to then find release point. And I mean, you know, realistically, there's really no way of measuring, I think, in my own mind, what was better. But that was something I became very accustomed to. I try not to look at the, the pitcher's face very often. If I see his upper body, it's usually just like I'll see shakes, you know, I'll see movement and, you know, shake, shake, usually insinuated fastball with, with two strikes. Um, even stuff like that, when I tell guys, I'm like, yeah, he just went shake, shake with two strikes. They're like, they start a breaking ball, right? I was like, no, he's, if he shakes more than more than twice, like, would he have 11 pitches? He, like, yeah. the catcher's telling him to shake. You guys got to realize pitchers aren't smart. Yeah. And then it's fun when you get against the, the smart pitchers and they, like, go the opposite way and then you just play cat and mouse. But the focus stuff for me was more from lower half to upper half, and then I would drift into the the the, the release point. I think – you know, I, do you feel like high school hitters have an understanding of this or you talk to your hitters about this stuff? Oh, they've never thought about it before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's generally speaking, like this is where I tell my new rule of thumb. And I don't know if I told you this when I saw you the other day. I tell kids, and this is probably mean, in cancel culture, I'm not allowed to say this, but I, I'm like, hey, listen, if you're under the, the age of 25, like you just have to come to terms with this, accept it, you're an idiot. Like just accept the fact that you're an idiot. And I mean that with like, all due respect, because I think there's a lot of bright 25-year-old kids that want to learn and want to grow and want to evolve. But I think like our desire to feel like we, we have conviction about something 
can be limiting in terms of our ability to like open our mind. Cause I was, I was exactly the same way. I, I was like a guy, I was a contrarian. I tried to challenge everything. And I was like, I know how to do this. And I think it, it put restrictions on me in terms of like how quickly I could gain new information. Um, and one of the things that, and I'll reflect back to Barry, I'll revert back to him because, you know, this is a big year for him last year on the hall of fame ballot or whatever. And, um, you know, one of the things he said, he was talking about how he coached the Mark when he coached, when he became a hitting coach, that was one of the greatest experiences of his baseball career. And he, he said, you know, like at some point guys, like you're not going to have me as a resource. Like my eyes are going to fail me. My, you know, my, whatever, I'm going to get old. He said, why wouldn't you want to take this information now? Like, cause the worst thing that happens, it's, he's like, it's free. So just take it. And then if you don't like it, throw it in the trash. Like, and, and I wish, like, I wish I had been more, I guess I had sought out better information when I was younger. If there's one thing I could go back and do, like, I didn't have rich getting in my life till I was 21. And I don't think till that point in my life, I didn't, I had nobody that taught me hitting. Everything I learned was on my own, yeah. which is scary to think about. One of the major things that we have to help our guys understand is that, you know, we have like a 90 minute practice block and yeah. I tell them all the time, like, you're not going to become a better hitter on the 20 swings you get in our hitting groups today. Like you need to hit. Um, and that's kind of our job to, to help them with a routine that's going to, you know, allow them to maximize those extra swings that they take and, and have a process, you know? Well, and I think that's, I tell guys all the time, like, are you just doing what's required or are you? you're going to go f- do more, you know? And, it, and there's, a th- again, there's a threshold, there's a time and place. And I was like, if you just go take swings to take swings, then it's not worth it. No, my But if you're going to go take swings to discover, then, you know, the cage is always open. There's some way to get in there. So yeah. go figure it out. Bobby, I got, a, I, just, awesome. I got one last question for you and just give me like a, a spark notes version of what it was like throwing in the home run derby. A spark notes version. That sounds uh, terrifying. And I, I don't mean like how it happened or how it ended up, but like just actually like being actual pitching strikes. The, the weirdest part was when, so we were the second group to go. Rizzo went first. He went full panic mode and just like was hooking <laughs> balls and rushing. It was the first year of the, the timer. Yeah. So the most surreal moment was when the ESPN producer pointed at me. He's like, go. And I, I had to go out into the field and like go to the mound and yeah. throw some warm up pitches. The actual event itself, like actual throwing, wasn't a big deal because the, the hardest part was there was an umpire like telling me, go, stop, go, stop. Cause they, the, they couldn't track two balls in the air at once. And then Todd Frazier cheated and just went whenever he wanted. But we were supposed to wait until the ball landed to throw the next pitch. So from a rhythm standpoint, it kind of sucked. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you had to like, typically you get into, into a flow and you just throw. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of have to pause was weird, but the actual, like on the field, they always say like, don't look up cause the third deck effects, there was a timer. So I was standing on the mound. I could see the catcher. I could yeah. see the umpire who was like over his shoulder. And then there was a timer up on the first level of the concourse. So I basically, that's all I was looking at. It was throw strikes throw when you're supposed to throw and how much time do you have left? So, so you were able to manage your emotions and your anxiety. You, you weren't feeling like no fear were, of failure or anything like that. Uh, there, I don't, I would say there wasn't really time for that. It was just yeah. throw. It was you, how many, how many times do you throw in batting practice in your life? It's just, you throw it's, there's a bucket of balls. You pick up, you, like you have a routine. I'm bouncing balls off the mound. I'm you know, spinning and the he had an additional challenge because when, when I, 
so I, we were in Chicago. I told Donaldson, I said, that kid better throw you the home run derby or else you're a douche. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, can he handle it? And I was like, so now him, me, him and I are the only ones on the bus. And I waited for this moment. Him and I, we both homer. He scored two runs that day. Him and I both homered off sale. So I knew he was in a good mood. Hmm. Talking to people outside the clubhouse. We're on the second bus with the coaches. And Bobby's on the phone with me in the bus. And I said, I said, Donaldson, he better throw the home run derby to you. And he goes, can he handle it? And I said, here, he can handle it. And he's, and then, so he had like a personal challenge from JD too, which was like. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about that at all in the moment. <laughs> it was uh, so a JD Martinez story on the bus on the way to the event. So I took the team bus, or the, the player's bus. And he's like, you nervous? You nervous? I was like, I mean, not really. And he like, he literally put his hand on my chest. Yeah. He's like, oh, you're not. I was like, yeah, yeah you're I good. Just, like, I just have to throw BP. Yeah. The, like seeing Ken Griffey Jr. in the clubhouse was like, that was really cool. Yeah. Just to be around Ken Griffey, to be around Albert Pujols was really cool. Um, but like you go in the clubhouse, you're surrounded by all-stars. <laughs> and within 10 minutes, it's just, it's just a bunch of baseball players. It's, you, get, you get your rhythm, yeah. Yeah, it just – uh, one of the coolest things that I don't even know if I've talked about this ever was, um, I believe it was Ned Yost, the, um, the, the manager of the previous, it was a previous year's, uh, world, world series, series team yeah. was the manager. That's and he gave like this whole speech about how the, the all-star game was meaningful. Like everybody, like his whole like pregame speech. And I was like, I'm just sitting here. Like, yeah, I'm not supposed to be here for this. Yeah. But it was cool just to hear about. You know, he was talking about how much of an honor it was to be there, about, you know, your, how you're representing your team and your families and to soak up all the moments. I was like, this is pretty cool. I, like, not many people get to hear this message from that type of a person. So, Bobby, yeah, it was I'm cool. A, I'm a big cool. gear guy. How much gear did you get? Uh, I got a decent amount of gear. I'm also a big <laughs> gear guy. I got I got hoodie. I got shorts, shirts. Um, I got hooked up with um, some New Balance stuff before going out. Yeah. So I got a whole bunch of new balance stuff. Um, Jersey hat. That was cool. Yeah. The Jersey's pretty cool. We should just, you should just volunteer yourself to throw the Hummer Derby every year. Maybe you just get a new set of gear. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would do it. If the, if the players weren't picking their own people, the coolest thing I got, I got a Albert pool signed bat. That was my coolest. Uh, he was probably the number one influencer on my, my swing journey. So I was just creeping on him hard after like everybody had showered up. I'm just like waiting in my locker, just waiting for him because the, the Latin press was there last. And it was basically him and I were the only two people left in the clubhouse. Yeah. And I just went over and just chatted with him and um, the bats over over there right now, but it was uh, just, it's cool to be able to just talk to him and say, I geeked out on him pretty hard. And I was like, you're the reason I'm here. And I'm just like, yeah, who is this kid? Why is he talking? <laughs> <laughs> but it was well, cool to be, to be there. I'll leave you with one last story. And this is something I shared with Chris when we were hanging out a couple of weeks ago, but um, I told him about the time when I ran into you at our game against Bridgeton Academy at uh, yeah. North uh, New England baseball complex. And you were kind enough to come over to our dugout and say hello. And I was like, total like fanboy, man. I was like, Oh snap. That's Bobby Tewksbury. <laughs> that's so weird to hear that, but I appreciate it. Uh, because I uh, just, you know, uh, I had fallen into a deep dive with the, with the materials that you put out there and you've been so generous about putting resources out there for coaches and kids. And it came just right at the right time for me, man. So just thank you for all that. My pleasure. It's, it's number one thing I try to do is help educate and, and help people just see the swing differently and see create opportunity. Really. That's what it's all about. So yeah. that's really cool here.
Guys, this was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much, man. This was a bucket list item right here for me. Wow. Cool. That's how you that's how you know we're big time for sure. <laughs> this is how I sign off every show, by the way, KG. So don't don't judge me because of this, but it just kind of became our thing.